as you sit, I'd love you to take out your Bibles and uh, turn back to that reading, page 20 and 21 in those church Bibles, as we're going to examine this together. Uh, you'll also find there in your bulletin that you receive in the way in, uh, an outline that I'll be working through. That'll match the screens uh, that will come up along the way and help us to uh, make note of the amazing things God has shown us in here. Now let's pray as we come to God's Word together. Our Father, we thank you that you're our God, that you are marvellous, that you've done great things for us, and that you know us better than we know ourselves. Uh, would you show us, would you teach us, would you encourage our hearts, would you help us to know your love for us now as we consider your word together and all that's laid out for us here in this amazing event of this passage we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in 1937, a guy called John Steinbeck wrote a masterpiece called Of Mice and Men. Anyone alive back then? Okay, take my word for it. That's when he wrote it. It's a famous book about a famous saying. The best laid plans of mice and men often go wrong. And it's true, isn't it? We all know this from bitter personal experience. Uh, for no matter what we think we've organised, no matter what we think we've got all sorted out, it's going to work out, someone or something usually gets in the way and mucks it all up from us. Only in movie land do we get to sit back with a great big cigar and say, I love it when our plan comes together. For here in the land of real life, we live in a fallen world, don't we? And our best laid plans are touched by trouble at every turn. Trouble that we can't control coming from outside of us, but also the trouble, and which is much worse, is the trouble that we bring with us into each situation, from us. And indeed, when we open the Bible, God shows us the bitter truth that actually what rules our hearts is what rules our behaviour. What rules our hearts is what rules our behaviour. And that's certainly what we see as we come through the window of this passage before us today. Our window opens here at chapter 26, 34. We hear that Esau was 40 years old when he took wives for himself from the local Hittites and they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. A grief because such marriages should never have happened. Abraham, Isaac's dad, Esau's grandfather, had gone to great lengths and great expense to ensure that intermarriage with the Canaanites would never happen to Isaac. And now in the very next generation, it's happened, the moment Esau is marriageable age. It shouldn't have happened. And it wouldn't have happened if Isaac had expressed his leadership in the family. But he's become lazy in his leadership and he chose not to see Esau's folly. And from this seed, a bitter root grows. And 37 years later, now completely blind, Isaac thinks he's soon to die and he decides to assert his preferences and please his cravings. And so in the privacy of his tent, Isaac plots to enthrone his favourite son Esau over his twin brother Isaac. Uh, Jacob, sorry. Uh, Jacob. And uh, Like Adam fell to food and Noah fell to wine, now Isaac follows his taste buds and says secretly to Esau, prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I might give you a blessing before I die. Now, more than just a bad decision, this is actually a devious plot. 
In ancient Near Eastern tradition, a man soon to die was supposed to call in the whole family, bring everyone in and distribute his will, uh, his dying blessing upon all the family in various ways. Now, this is what Abraham had very carefully done for Isaac and his many brothers, recorded in chapter 25. Isaac's seen this. He knows what's supposed to happen. And that Abraham went to painstaking lengths to ensure God's purposes would stand and that there would be zero conflict regarding the birthright and its blessing. But now, driven by his devotion to his favourite son, Isaac wants to overturn God's promises declared before his two sons were born. And so he sets up a plot to wrestle the birthright and blessing back from Jacob and return it secretly to Esau instead. Now, there's clearly no honour on Esau's part either for, well, his Isaac's willing accomplice in this deviant plot. However, somebody's listening. There's always somebody listening. And this time, well, unknown to the both, Isaac's re- wife, Rebecca, is listening closely nearby. Her suspicions are aroused and she's deeply alarmed at their plot. And caring nothing now for the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, no, Rebecca's heart is also ruled by something. It's ruled by ambition for her favourite son, Jacob. And so unlike when she was young, well, she doesn't speak up. Unlike when she was younger, she doesn't pray. No, instead, she waits and she schemes. And then she launches a counterplot of her own to deceptively gain Isaac's blessing with Jacob's help for Jacob. Now, Jacob's initial response to this is alarm. But sadly, it's not on the grounds of good morals or honour, is it, that he objects. Now, Jacob has no fear of deceiving a blind man. He has no fear of dishonouring his father or stealing from his brother. Jacob's not worried about doing something wrong. No, he's just worried he's going to get caught. Verse 12. What if my father touches me? I'd appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. And then in a spine-chilling response, his mother replies, Oh, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. And in this awful scene, here at the very beginning of the Bible, God reveals to us the ugliness of an end-means ethic. An end means ethic. When we decide that the end result justifies any means to get it. Uh, This is the ethic we know that drove the Nazis in World War II, this Machiavellian idea that the end result justifies any means. And so if the end result of having no Jews in Germany, well, that for them justified any means to achieve it. Even slaughtering them en masse in death camps. And we know this, this ethical standard is an absolute disaster in our world. Repeatedly a disaster played out all over the world. And it certainly has no place in the family of God. It certainly has no place in the church. Christians, there is no end result that we can imagine as followers of Jesus. There's no end result that could ever justify acting deceitfully or abusively in order to attain it. There is none. Now, the promises of God will be delivered 
by God in his term, timing and method, not in ours. No, if we're ever going to act on divine purposes, if we're going to do that, then we must do it with divine morals. But for Rebecca and Jacob, the die is cast. And helped now by complicit Jacob, Rebecca made her careful manipulations. And she prepared the food. And she made Jacob hairy with the goatskin. And she stole Esau's best clothing for his back and sent him on his way to, well, defraud his brother, deceive his father, her husband, and to dishonour the Lord. And isn't the tension hanging in the air as we read this? It hangs on such a knife edge, doesn't it? Will the ruse work? Will the disguise succeed? Will Jacob's voice give him away? Will Isaac give the blessing? And, and will it happen fast enough that Esau doesn't come back and, and interrupt them in the process? I mean, the drama of the scene is, is brilliantly played out here. At how close it all comes to failure in that very first moment when Jacob talks too much and then, and then Jacob lied straight up about God, didn't he? I mean, how did God restrain himself from not striking Jacob down in that moment? And how did Jacob remain patient while Isaac, you know, took his time with the touching and the eating and the smelling? Talk about a, a master chef moment of tension. Isaac ate and poor old nervous Jacob watched on. And finally, Isaac is seduced. Seduced by the touch of Jacob's goat hair, the delicious taste of Rebecca's food and the strong scent of Esau's clothing. And then this blessing rises from Isaac's heart as he pours out everything he loves to bless his favourite son, he thinks, is Esau. Verse 27. Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's riches and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. Wait, what? What, what happened to the promises of God that Isaac had inherited? He's supposed to pass on. What, what, what happened to the land, the people and the blessing? Where have they gone? What, what happened to the covenant that would bring forth the snake crusher who would bless the entire world and not just himself? Well, these things are no longer the chief concern of Isaac's heart. No, he's now ruled by selfish gluttony and favoritism. And Isaac's blessing is therefore absent of the things that make for godliness absent of the things that make for love and care of others. Uh, ruled now by taste, touch, smell and sight, Isaac refused to live by his ears. Refused to listen, refused to remember. Because if Isaac had trusted his ears, remember, Jacob's disguise would have failed. If Isaac had trusted his ears, he would have remembered God's blessing spoken to him and God's promise for Jacob over Esau. But he didn't. He refused to listen. And so bewitched by his taste for game and the touch and smell of Esau, well, the deed is done. Blessing is given, 
And Jacob, well, having now achieved all he set out to do, without even a word of thanks, well, he beats a hasty retreat with his mouth clamped shut. And none too quickly either. Because here comes Esau, flushed with success from his hunting trip and eager to receive what his father secretly promised, Esau boldly enters in to claim his blessing. Verse 31. My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. And hearing clearly now for the first time, Isaac is shaken back into reality. And he checks Esau's identity, not by touching him or smelling him, but actually listening at last. And trembled violently, overcome with a shocking reality that what he had done could not be reversed. I ate just before you came in and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. And to this Esau burst out with a loud and bitter cry, bless me, me too, my father. But Isaac's resolute. It's not possible. And then refusing to name Jacob or call him his own son, no deceitful Isaac now becomes the accuser of deceit. Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. And Esau joins the party and passes judgment on Jacob, a sentence that will mar his name forever. Isn't he rightly named Jacob? Remember what that means? Grasper, taker. He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright and now he has taken my blessing. And yet worse is still to come. As Esau discovers how blessed Jacob has become and that nothing is left over and with pathetic tears now Esau pleads again and again until Isaac relents and gives an anti-blessing which becomes, well, a curse guaranteeing his sons will be enemies forever. From verse 39, your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you'll throw his yoke from off your neck. Oh, what dreadful words to have spoken. And what a burden to have given. Isaac would have been better to keep his mouth shut. For as we read on in the Bible, we find that this anti-blessing on Esau now becomes a plague that will show its head time and again in all the centuries that follow. Esau's descendants, well they will live away from the Jew and the earth's blessing. They're going to live in the hunting territories down south and east of the Jordan and they're going to refuse entry to Jacob's descendants, Israel, when they travel to the promised land. And Edom will be the first nation to throw off the yoke of Israel by force. They'll do that as recorded in 2 Kings chapter 8. And the prophet Obadiah will write against them of God's response to Edom's brutality later at the fall of Jerusalem under the Babylonians. And perhaps worst of all, the one you and I know so well that happened, and we know it from the Christmas story, it will be Herod the Great, the descendant of Esau, who will kill a generation of children in his rabid attempt to catch and kill the baby Jesus in Bethlehem. Isaac's plans have gone terribly wrong. And it seems that Rebekah was absolutely right, that the curse 
falling on her would fall on her and her descendants for all the centuries to come. And what of, what of angering, blubbering Esau? Well, he stands here from now and for eternity as a warning against the temptation to treat our inheritance lightly. Yeah, it's kind of okay. It's fine to feel sympathy for him in this moment, but we also need to learn from his mistake. We must learn. And the New Testament uh, later in the letter of the Hebrews makes sure that we keep Esau in mind, that we as Christians will keep him in mind. Hebrews 12, 14 and following, we read this. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done what he had done. See, the fact remains that regardless of tears and regret, the blessing of God is irrevocably tied to the birthright of God. And if you're here today, if we call ourselves Christians, oh, we need to learn from this. We must be sure to never, ever treat our heavenly inheritance lightly or cheaply. Oh, no. Esau is proof that we can't afford to play games with our heavenly future. If we willingly and deliberately give it away, don't expect that we can somehow retrieve it. And meanwhile, Esau's influence in the family, well, it remains, doesn't it? Because back there, it's still there. He's still alive. They're all still going on. And now he is like a roaring lion ready to devour his prey. Verse 41, Esau's plot is to kill Jacob the moment his father is dead. Now, it's going to gain him nothing beyond the satisfaction of revenge. Yet he consoles himself, he comforts himself with the thought of killing his brother. And he speaks and boasts loudly enough about it that the ears of Rebekah get alerted once more. And alarmed again for her younger son Jacob, Rebecca now conspires once more a counterplot, again, a counterplot of her own to ensure Jacob's future. She first commands Jacob, out of fear for his life, to go to her brother Laban in Haran. And when he chooses not to immediately obey his mother, well, Rebecca now tricks Isaac once again into sending him instead. But she doesn't use the same motive. There's no protection going on there, is there? Do you notice that? No, she instead appeals to the grief that she and Isaac had suffered because of Esau's wives. And this, interestingly, stirred Isaac into action. So it's, not the, it's not the danger of persecution or death that Rebecca appealed to. No, no, she appealed to the danger of accommodation. Accommodation. And Isaac responded immediately. He understood this danger completely. For if Jacob accommodated himself as Esau had done, then the birthright and the blessing would be lost forever. 
See, when it comes to our identity, greater than the danger of death by persecution from the culture is the danger of our accommodation to the culture. It's a greater danger. Remember, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And accommodation, in in this case through marriage, to the culture, it draws God's people away from holiness like nothing else can. Christians, we, we will do well to fear accommodation more highly than we ever fear persecution. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. An accommodation like Esau is a fast track away from it. And so in brilliant clarity now at last, well, Isaac's listening, Isaac's awake, he's attentive, Isaac remembers, and he sends Jacob immediately to get a wife from Uncle Laban. And now irony of ironies, oh, guess what? The true blessing of Abraham now comes forth at last. Here it is, 28 verse 3. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. There it is. There it is. Descendants, blessing, land. That's the birthright blessing. That's what should have come out before. These are the words that we've been waiting for. These are the words of promise. You kind of wonder, if if only Rebecca had thought about this earlier. If only Isaac had actually done his fatherly duty to provide a wife for Jacob back when he was 40, 37 years earlier. If if only they had been provoked sooner by Esau's failure to honour his father in marriage and move into this accommodation thinking. If only Isaac had feared the Lord and feared for the blessing and the birthright. For if they had, perhaps that blessing might have come forth naturally from Isaac as it does in this moment. And that grief may have been sidestepped. But here we are. And with that task complete at last, Isaac and Rebecca, well, they will all but disappear into obscurity in the Bible. Uh, sure, he won't die for another 43 years at age 180. Yeah, sure, mate, you're about to die. 43 years he lasts till age 180. But Isaac's importance now fades, and it fades because the Abrahamic promises have been passed on now to Jacob, and Jacob leaves for Paddan Aram. Will he be successful on this journey to get a wife? Or will his godless morals and end justifies the means ethics? Will that damage his future there also? Well, this is what we'll discover in the coming chapters. But yet not to be outdone. Esau, well, he kind of has the final word here, doesn't he? And it serves us well as we round out our thoughts about Esau, who we'll see a little bit more of him to come, but we need to understand who he is and what he's like. See, remembering or realising now, 37 years too late, that it's actually a dumb idea to, well, not to honour your parents, it's actually quite a dumb idea. And so Esau now wakes up to this and he seeks to improve his marriage situation. 
But oh no, he, he doesn't change the situation. He doesn't get rid of his foreign wives. No, repentance wasn't in his nature. Uh, and no, he didn't go to Padan Aram to get a wife from Laban like Jacob has been commanded to do because no, obedience, well, that's not in his nature either. Uh, sure, Esau wanted to do the right thing, but Esau wanted to have all the benefits of his father's blessing without the cost. Without cost. Repentance, obedience and allegiance to God? Oh, no, thank you. That was way too expensive for Esau, who preferred to accommodate himself to the culture. And so he took the shortcut of pretend obedience and visited Uncle Ishmael to get a wife from him instead. And so we find that regardless of his anguish, regardless of his desperate tears, Esau's heart, well, it, it wasn't ruled by the things of God and this showed up in his settled decisions to live, well, however he thought best. And at that, we close the window on the worst of the family of Isaac. Ruled by the desires of their hearts, they caused havoc for one another. And all of their best laid plots and plans went wrong. And they went wrong. Not, not for a lack of God's blessing did they go wrong. No, they went wrong because of their lack of blameless faith. And it kind of makes us wonder, doesn't it? Why would God choose people like this? Why would he persevere with people such as these? Oh, but uh-oh, that window into this passage isn't just a window, is it? It's also a mirror. <laughs> For as we look and see these people, we see ourselves, don't we? We see ourselves. Are we really any better than Isaac's family in the way that we behave, in the ethics we choose, in the way we accommodate ourselves? In the loves of our hearts, are we any better? Hmm. Well, the good news is, is that God does persevere with them. Isn't that good? He perseveres with them and he perseveres with us. See, the good news is he does so because his plans, God's plans, well, they are bigger and they are more inclusive of messy people like you and me than we would ever care to admit, than we would ever care to allow. But this is our God. He is gracious to sinners. And yes, our responsibility for our sin, it guarantees both our condemnation and our need for salvation and will God in his sovereignty, will he make sure salvation happens? Not at the timing and placement that we might choose or that Jacob and Isaac and others might prefer, but certainly at the place and time that God chose as best. You see, Jacob's lonely walk away from his father is the shadow of another lonely walk that we find in the New Testament. At that time, the man in charge of everything will also wash his hands of any personal responsibility for what happens. At that time, the, the blind ambition of the crowd will lead them to claim a curse upon themselves and their children as they cry, crucify him, crucify him. At that time, the longing for death of an enemy who's taken the limelight, it will wait for nothing, it will be achieved. And at that time, 
our main character, the descendant of Jacob, the inheritor of the promise, Jesus Christ will be cursed for sins that are not his own. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Friends, salvation belongs to our God. And his plans to save, oh, they always come together. Our sins, they are many. But his mercy, oh, his mercy is more. Hallelujah. Praise be to God for his great work. Amen.